All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Sean Weiss, a.k.a. The Compliance Guy, and today I want to talk about the DOJ evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And the reason for this is it's really a prosecutor's playbook. And the fact that it was released by the criminal division of the Department of Justice gives us more reason to pay very close attention to it. Because the manual or the guidance document prompts prosecutors to ask very specific questions and to look at things in a very systematic way prior to making a determination on a charging document or working on a settlement agreement or something um, that brings the potential culprit or culprits to the table. And I think it's important to address corporate compliance programs irrespective of your entity size. So whether you're a solo practitioner or you are part of a large integrated delivery health system with thousands of providers, determining whether you have established a culture of compliance within your organization is critical. And whether you're a CEO, CFO, CCO, COO, practice manager, practice administrator, senior position of the group, I think it's critical that you engage throughout the process of building, implementing, and auditing or monitoring your compliance program. So today I have a few different areas that I want to sort of focus on, obviously the impact of the United States Department of Justice Criminal Division's evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Um, I do want to briefly touch on effectively preparing for a payer audit because those ultimately are what lead to uh, escalation of cases to the Office of Inspector General for further investigation and or onto the DOJ, depending on what the investigatory agency identifies. Um, and then, obviously, talking about, again, corrective action plans that you can create internally to help mitigate your risks. So in starting this conversation, I think, obviously, understanding what it is that the government and its prosecutors are looking at becomes paramount. And there's three critical questions that are outlined in the guidance documents. And these are things that are also talked about in the United States sentencing guidelines. But let's, let's kind of go through these. So the first is whether or not the corporation's compliance program is well-designed. Um, you've heard me talk about this uh, on numerous podcasts. You've heard me talk about this with um, former special agent from the Office of Inspector General, um, Eric Rubenstein. I've discussed this with uh, 
other healthcare-centered attorneys on my show. Uh, what is a well-designed program? Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that the days of trying to convince somebody that a 500, 700, 1,000-page document in a three-ring binder is a well-designed compliance program. I think what we've learned over the years is that simple is better. And what I mean by that is when you talk about a corporate compliance program, for the most part, statutes, laws, regulations, acts, they don't really change unless they go under some type of significant, um, you know, we'll call it restorative work or, you know, um, additions added to uh, the laws for clarifications or whatever it might be, like Stark is a good example, right? We had Stark 1, Stark 2, Stark 3, and now we have the release of the uh, final rule from 2020 outlining changes to Stark, both for 2021 and those that will go into effect in 2022. So there are times where um, statutes or laws do change, which will drive us having to redesign or improve upon our corporate compliance program itself. Uh, again, we also saw that with the anti-kickback statutes as well. So what I'm, what I'm getting to is that things like credit balances and cost reporting and collection of co-pays and or deductibles, those types of things, the structure of your corporate compliance program, meaning the seven key components of your compliance program, aren't going to change. But what does consistently change, what's always being adjusted, are your policies. And you've heard me talk about meat and potatoes a lot um, in different podcasts when it comes to compliance programs. And, and, and meat and potatoes is simple. The meat of any compliance program is going to be your policies. The potatoes are basically the outline, the design, the framework of your corporate compliance program. So for me, anything more than 15 to 20 pages for a large group practice or uh, um, an integrated health system, uh, I don't know going beyond 20 pages really does a whole lot. I think you could say what you need to say in that short period of time. I think for solo practices and small group practices, you know, probably five to a maximum of 10 pages for your corporate compliance program is enough. Use the KISS principle. I talk about this all the time. But really focus your energy on your policies because your policies are what investigators are going to use to make a determination as to whether or not you have a well-designed compliance program. If you have a bunch of policies that are so complex, they're so massive, that it makes it nearly impossible for 
your staff to understand what is expected of them or to be able to carry out the requirements of that policy, then things get missed. The ball gets dropped. People sidestep certain responsibilities, and that's what we're trying to avoid. So keep it simple. The second question that gets asked is whether or not the program is being applied earnestly and in good faith. So in other words, is the program adequately resourced and does it empower individuals to function effectively? Again, you've got to have a compliance officer. And your compliance officer needs to be somebody who is versed in regulatory affairs. They don't always have to be a lawyer, but they have to be well-versed enough to be able to know where to go to research and how to conduct investigations and how to convey findings and draft corrective action plans and collaborate with other members of the team, but also putting aside any pride that they may have as the compliance officer and to recognize that if they're not an attorney, they have limitations in their knowledge. They have limitations as to the protections that they can afford. The whole purpose of a compliance officer, in my opinion, as somebody who serves as a compliance officer, is to function as an independent, objective arm of the organization and to look at complaints and data and information that's provided to me, as I said, objectively, without bias, and to drive the bus forward in those areas where an investigation is warranted. And then the third and final question that gets asked is, does the corporation's compliance program actually work? Does it work in practice? And these three questions that we just went through, they could all be found in the justice manual um, it's 9-28.800. So in going back to the very first question that I asked, or that is asked, is whether or not the corporation's compliance program is well-designed. And the critical factors in evaluating any program are whether the program is adequately designed for maximum effectiveness in preventing and detecting wrongdoing by employees and whether corporate management is enforcing the program or is tactically encouraging or pressuring employees to engage in misconduct. Again, this is clearly outlined in, in JM, the Justice Manual, 9-28.800. So it goes on to say in the section also that prosecutors should examine the comprehensiveness of the compliance program to ensure that there is not only a clear message that misconduct is not tolerated, but also that policies and procedures exist. So from appropriate assignments of responsibility to training programs to systems of incentives and discipline 
they're looking to ensure that the compliance program is well integrated into the company's operation and workforce. So we always talk about the seven steps of a compliance program, but you've heard me recently talk about the eighth step that's been added to it. And this is the risk assessment. So again, in the guidance document that we're talking about, they, they, they go through the fact that the starting point for a prosecutor's evaluation of whether a company has a well-designed compliance program is for them to first understand the company's business from a commercial perspective, how the company has identified, assessed, and defined its risk profile, and the degree to which the program devotes appropriate scrutiny and resources to the spectrum of risks that they face. So in short, what they're saying is that prosecutors should endeavor to understand why the company has chosen to set up the compliance program the way it has and why and how the company's compliance program has evolved over time. Listen, you, you hear me talk about this all the time. Compliance is not a destination. It's a journey. It's not like you're ever going to take your cruise ship and sail into port and dock because it has to continue to evolve. Your compliance program is a living, breathing document that is continuously adjusted based on the risks that you face in your specialty. So again, prosecutors are encouraged to consider whether the program is appropriately designed to detect the particular types of misconduct most likely to occur in the corporation and to look at the complexities of the regulatory landscape for which an organization operates. So the DOJ also goes on to talk about the fact that prosecutors need to consider the effectiveness of the company's risk assessment and the manner in which the company's compliance program has been tailored based on that risk assessment and whether its criteria are periodically updated. And periodically can mean different things to different people. So again, set your policies in motion to identify what a periodic update to your compliance uh, policies and procedures actually means. Is it quarterly? Is it every six months? Is it once a year? At a minimum, it better be once a year. <clears throat> so we do this because the government says that prosecutors may credit the quality and effectiveness of a risk-based compliance program that devotes appropriate attention and resources to high-risk transactions, even if it fails to prevent a particular infraction. So therefore, they encourage prosecutors to consider as an indicator of risk tailoring revisions to corporate compliance programs in light of lessons learned. 
look, as long as you are not acting with knowledge or you're acting in a willful, negligent way or a deliberately ignorant way, if you have a strong compliance program, you have policies that are being followed, you have policies that are being updated on a regular basis or a periodic basis, even if an infraction takes place and you learn from that and you create a corrective action plan, the government isn't necessarily going to come down with a sledgehammer on you. And there's a lot of great guidance that's produced on the steps required for a risk assessment. Um, a few of them are, are straightforward, such as a risk management process, which takes into account the methodology the company used to identify, analyze, and address um, any particular risks it faces. It also addresses risk-tailored resource allocation. So the question becomes, does the company devote a disproportionate amount of time to policing low-risk areas instead of high-risk areas? It looks at updates and revisions. So is the risk assessment current and subject to periodic review? Is the periodic review limited to a snapshot in time, or is it based upon continuous access to operational data and information across functions? And then, as I said just a few moments ago, what lessons have actually been learned? Does the company have a process for tracking and incorporating into its periodic risk assessment lessons learned either from the company's own prior issues or from those of other companies operating in the same geographical region or in the same space, meaning obviously for us, healthcare? So we always talk about policies and procedures, and I think uh, the quick down and dirty of this is to recognize that any well-designed compliance program entails policies and procedures that give both content and effect to ethical norms and that those address and aim to reduce risks identified by the company as part of its risk assessment process. So prosecutors are told to assess whether the company has established policies and procedures that incorporate the culture of compliance into its day-to-day -day operations. So they are encouraged to look at the design of the policies, the comprehensiveness of the policies, the accessibility of the policies, responsibilities for operational integration. Who are the gatekeepers of this information? And then prosecutors also are, are told to assess the steps taken by the organization to ensure that policies and procedures have been integrated across the organization through training and certification for director levels, for officers, for all relevant employees, and where appropriate, agents and business partners of the organizations. And again, prosecutors are also told to assess whether the company has relied or relayed information, excuse me, in a manner tailored to the 
audience size, sophistication, or subject matter expertise. So, in short, prosecutors need to examine whether the compliance program is being disseminated to and understood by employees in practice in order for them to decide whether the compliance program is truly effective. And again, they look at your risk-based training. They look at the form, the content, the effectiveness of the training. They look at communications about misconduct. They talk about availability of guidance documents. What resources have been, have been made available to employees to provide guidance relating to compliance policies? So there's no shortage of information um, within this guidance document. Again, uh, they talk about confidential reporting structures and investigation processes. They talk about third-party management and mergers and acquisitions. Um, which leads us into, again, reiteration of the second question. Is the corporation's compliance program adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively? Because even a well-designed compliance program may be unsuccessful in practice if implementation is lax under, uh, if it's laxed or under-resourced or otherwise ineffective. So again, it's important to understand that prosecutors are instructed to probe specifically where, whether a compliance program is a quote-unquote paper program or one that is implemented, reviewed, and revised as appropriate in an effective manner. They, they look to see if there's a commitment by senior and middle management beyond compliance structures beyond just written policies and procedures, because it's important for an organization to create and foster a culture of ethics and compliance with the law at all levels of the organization. And the company's top leaders can't act like ostriches and bury their head in the sand, nor can the board of directors or executives in the organization, because these individuals set the tone for the rest of the company. So prosecutors are told that they need to examine the extent to which senior management have clearly articulated the company's ethical standards, that they've conveyed and disseminated them in a clear and unambiguous terms, and that they've demonstrated rigorous adherence to policy. But it's not just limited to the top echelon in an organization, because prosecutors are also told to examine middle management. In turn, have they reinforced those standards and encouraged employees to abide by them? Remember, the company's governing authority shall be knowledgeable about the content and operation of the compliance and ethics program and shall exercise reasonable oversight of it. And it actually specifically says, high-level personnel shall ensure that the organization has an effective compliance and ethics program. And there's emphasis added. 
So again, they're looking at the conduct at the top. They're looking at a shared commitment. They're looking at the oversight. And then again, they look at the autonomy of the compliance program and the compliance uh, professionals and the resources deployed in the organization. And in the guidance document, there is a, um, a, a, a dedicated section to autonomy and resources, really worth your while because they go through the structure, the seniority and the uh, stature, experience and qualifications, funding and resources, data resources and access, autonomy, outsource compliance functions. So pay close attention to this um, this section uh, as a compliance uh, professional or as a leader of your organization. And then the document also talks about the fact that prosecutors need to assess the extent to which the company's communications convey, uh, convey to its employees that unethical conduct will not be tolerated and it will bring swift consequences regardless of the position or title of the employee who engages in the conduct. You need to put in place appropriate incentives to perform in accordance with the compliance and ethics program, and you have to have appropriate disciplinary measures for engaging in criminal conduct and for failing to take reasonable steps to prevent or detect criminal conduct. You need to examine your human resources process. You need to ensure that there's a consistent application across the spectrum. And then look at your incentive um, system to ensure that, you know, you've considered the implication uh, for incentives and rewards on compliance. And then the third aspect that we uh, started talking about, or the third question, is does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? So... Again, they're looking at the principles of federal prosecution of business organizations because it requires prosecutors to assess the adequacy and effectiveness of the corporation's compliance program at the time of the offense as well as at the time of a charging decision. And they do this due to the fact that the backward-looking nature of the first inquiry, one of the most difficult questions prosecutors have to answer in evaluating a compliance program following misconduct is whether the program was working effectively at the time of the offense, especially where the misconduct was not immediately detected. So, prosecutors also look to determine whether a company's compliance program is working effectively at the time of a charging decision or resolution. So prosecutors need to consider whether the program evolved over time to address existing and changing compliance risks, right? So the guidance to the prosecutors is that they need to consider whether the com company took an adequate and honest root cause analysis to understand both what contributed to the misconduct and the degree of remediation needed to prevent similar events in the future. 
So, for example, prosecutors need to consider, among other factors, whether the corporation has made significant investment in and improvements to its corporate compliance program and internal control systems, and whether remedial improvements to the compliance program and internal controls have been tested to demonstrate that they would prevent or detect similar misconduct in the future. And then obviously, they're looking for continuous improvement, periodic testing, and review of all of this information. All right. So, as you can see, there is a tremendous amount that goes into um, prosecutors making a determination as to how they're going to proceed in a case. And one of the things that I'll talk about is the guidance provided for investigation of misconduct. And it, and it specifically focuses on the fact that an effective investigation structure will also have an established means of documenting the company's response, including any disciplinary or remediation measures taken. So they're looking at your qualified personnel. They're looking at responses to your investigations. So they will perform a complete analysis and remediation of any underlying misconduct um, you know, as part of that investigation to see what, what remedial actions were taken by the corporation, if any. So that's my introduction for all of you on the DOJ's um, evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And a lot of the information that I was talking about is um, cited sourced from the Justice Manual, specifically JM 9-28.000, which falls under principles of federal prosecution of business organizations. And you can go out to the um, Justice website, which is www.justice.gov, and then do a search for the principles of federal prosecution business organizations, and you'll find a tremendous amount of information there. Or you could simply do a Google search for the Criminal Division Corporate um, Compliance Programs uh, guidance documents. So... Um, with that said, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the importance of performing internal audits for just a couple of moments. For me, there's absolutely no reason on a monthly or quarterly basis or at a minimum annually that practices aren't conducting internal chart reviews. Now, if you think your chart reviews are going to be biased and your staff is not well engineered to deliver the cold hard facts of problematic coding, billing, or documentation to your providers for whatever reason may be, maybe they're intimidated, maybe they are, are not good at um, verbal communication or written communications, whatever it may be. 
you know, look to external auditors. There's, there's, now I will say this, that whoever you're going to use carefully, um, but there's some great external auditors that are out there. Now, for me, when I start looking at charts for review on behalf of our clients, you know, I ask myself, if there's a problem, how am I going to defend medical necessity? It always leads me to whether or not documentation exists within the medical record. And the question that I always ask is, does medical necessity exist or likely exist, but the issue is lacking documentation in the medical record? Because that's often the problem. Remember, physicians have a responsibility to provide sufficient documentation that paints a clear picture of each encounter. So as an auditor, you need to be able to determine whether the procedures in question are truly clinically necessary or if the issue is documentation related and is it critical to the defense of the investigation that you're conducting or of the audit that you're conducting? So it behooves you to make sure that all relevant medical records have been retrieved and reviewed, which means you've got to look at your office notes, your hospital notes, your nursing home notes, rehab notes, wherever services are rendered. But most importantly is to look to make certain that there are local coverage determinations or national coverage determinations or medical coverage policies to support the billing and coding of these services. And remember, during an audit, if the allegations are that documentation is inaccurate, have we generated clinical rebuttals to further clarify the need for services and state the physician's clinical judgment or opinion clearly. Remember, if you're going to pull an audit on your providers, um, you know, understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish because you're not always going to perform a statistically valid sample. You may want to do a probe sample because a probe can be incorporated into a statistically valid sample. You can do a non-probability sample. You can do a convenient sample. Um, again, unless you have an identified problem, it is not necessary for you to embark on a statistically valid sample. So, again, Understanding that our audits impact our compliance, it becomes critical to understand that what we learn from our audits has to translate into compliance. And our policies and procedures need to be derived from audits, or at least in theory, they should be. And remember, as a result, of audit findings, providers, as always, can expect to see an increased effort by the federal government to prevent, identify, and punish healthcare fraud. So be aware of these things. 
All right, so the last thing that I want to address um, is corrective action plans, because whether you're filing an OIG self-disclosure, whether you're throwing yourself at the mercy of the prosecutor from the Department of Justice, they're all going to be looking for corrective action plans. And these are critical components to sending a clear message that we are committed to doing the right thing. It shows our compliance plan is a living, breathing document that's ever adjusting and growing within our organization. And remember that most compliance professionals want to self-disclose when an error is identified. But again, self-disclosure is not always warranted. Oftentimes, things we make mistakes on don't lead to undeserved remunerations. They could simply be a breakdown in process that needs to be better defined or clarified. So before a decision is made about a self-disclosure, make sure you speak with your healthcare attorney who's um, able to determine the best course of action. However, as I said, regardless of what the final determination is, you still need to develop a, a, a corrective action plan. And your CAP has five basic assets aspects. First is, what is the issue or problem? Second is to understand the root cause. Third are the action steps that have been taken. Fourth is improvement benchmarks and timeframes. And fifth is the certification. So again, for the issue or problem, we want to identify the potential problem and provide a lay explanation of the problem. For the root cause, we want to identify what led to the problem. The action steps are where we identify the steps taken to correct or reverse the potential problem. And then the improvement benchmarks and timeframes address how you will monitor the situation going forward to ensure compliance. And the last step, obviously, is certification. The compliance officer or responsible individual or party to ensure compliance signs off on that corrective action plan. So I think what I set out to do today was obviously give you an introduction into the Department of Justice evaluation of corporate compliance programs to kind of walk you through a prosecutor's playbook in short order, and then to talk about the importance of conducting audits within your organization and then when a problem has been identified and confirmed, putting in place a corrective action plan. So those were my goals. I think I accomplished those. At least I did in my mind, and I hope I did for you. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, obviously you can email me at sweiss at drsmgmt.com. That's sweiss at doctorsmanagement.com. Dot com. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast, and I look forward to you joining me on another in the near future. Again, my name is Sean Weiss. I hope you have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon.